The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about your New Year's resolutions and how to keep them with a yell at Fischbach. But first, let's find out a little bit about our habits with Charles Duhigg, author of The Power of Habit. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to 2018. We at Science for the People are glad that you're here with us, nerding out about science. So, have you made any New Year's resolutions? Maybe you want to eat better, spend more time with your kids, or work out more. Maybe you want to save money, go back to school, or get the new job you've been wanting. Maybe you want to make a positive difference in the world. Me, I want to spend less time mindlessly clicking between Facebook and Twitter, getting riled up for no purpose whatsoever. But while I've made my New Year's resolution, I've also accepted that I probably won't keep it. Keeping New Year's resolutions is much harder than it looks. It involves getting rid of old bad habits and forming new ones. But what's a habit? How does it form? How do we change it? Who the heck even keeps their New Year's resolutions anyway? This week, we're devoting our entire show to helping us keep our New Year's resolutions. I'm here with Charles Duhigg, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times and other publications, and author of The Power of Habit and the book Smarter, Faster, Better. Charles, thank you so much for taking time for us. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to start with something that seems kind of simple. What is a habit? So a habit is like a choice that we made at some point that we stop making but we continue acting on. And what's interesting is that about, according to the studies, about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit. And, and we tend to think about habits. I mean, you know, everyone from Aristotle to Oprah has talked about habits, right? Because they're almost half of what we do every day. And we tend to think about habit as a behavior. And, but that's not exactly right. What a habit is, is it's, it's three things. It's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start. And then a routine, which is that behavior itself. And then finally, a reward. And it's that reward that causes your brain to sort of latch on to this chunk of behaviors and say, I'm going to make that happen automatically. So the first time that you decided to have an unhealthy sandwich for lunch, that was actually a decision you made. And the first time you you backed your car out of your driveway, you had to pay a lot of attention to it. You had to sort of you know look in the mirrors and figure out like how do I how do I navigate backwards? But by the tenth or fifteenth time you do it, it happens automatically. It happens almost without you thinking about it. And that's important because if we want to change that habit, if we want to analyze it, we have to figure out what's the cue and what's the reward that's driving it. And once we know that, we can start sort of fiddling with the gears. And of course, habits, they're decisions. Decisions are based in the brain, and they're based around this reward loop that you've been talking about, um, which actually makes me think a lot of things that we talk about in rodents uh, called stereotypies or stereotyped behaviors. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, a lot of what we know about habit formation comes from Anne Grabiel, right, at MIT, who's who's one of the, who all of her work has been with rodents and sort of looking at neurological activity and is one of the sort of originators of really understanding what's happening inside the brain, particularly inside the basal ganglia, as a, 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 as, as a behavior becomes an automaticity. 
And so you mentioned the basal ganglia. What parts of the brain are involved in this kind of habit circuit of cue, habit, and then reward? Yeah, cue, routine, reward. And it's actually referred to as the habit loop. So you're exactly right. It, it sort of becomes a self-reinforcing loop. So it, it, most of it actually occurs in the basal ganglia. So, so every animal on Earth has a basal ganglia or a structure that looks like a basal ganglia if they have a sort of, you know, sufficiently advanced brain. It's one of the oldest and most common neurological structures that we see. And the point of the basal ganglia is pretty much to build habits because the evolutionary advantage of being able to create automatic behaviors <clears throat> is extreme, right? So, so think about, you know, and we know there, there are some diseases that actually, um, affect the basal ganglia and basically break down the ability to form habits. Uh, Parkinson's being one of those that's involved in, in basal ganglia activity. People who have Parkinson's or people who can't form habits, it's disastrous for them because they have to make decisions constantly, right? Think about how hard it would be if every single time you saw something that was round and colorful, if you had to decide whether it was fruit or a rock and decide whether to put it in your mouth, it would be incredibly cognitively taxing. So the ability to form habits or to sort of, you know, engage in, in this near near subconscious learning allows us to begin freeing up mental capacity or cognitive capacity for other activities like inventing fire or video games. And, and that tends to be really, really helpful for many species. And so in developing these habits, a lot of it is based around you have your cue, you have your routine, and you have your reward, right? How do right. you develop these loops? What does the brain go through in developing those loops? Um, well, it's a really good question. We don't we don't really know exactly, right? W what we know is that there tends to be some type of of we, we tend to see synapses grow around this cue routine reward, and and they're referred to as a chunking behavior. That our brain seems to be able to take this cue routine reward, make it into a chunk, and and build some type of neurological capacity around that chunk, where it becomes sort of a solitary unit. The, the reason why that's important for us, as we as we think about our own habits and other people's habits, is that recognizing that there's a cue and there's a reward for every single habit is really, really important because it gives us the ability to build new habits or to change existing habits. And, and it turns out that the sort of the, the place where we have the most effective impact or intervention is around those cues and rewards. So the behavior kind of follows along naturally. If you can figure out what the cue and reward is and come up with a plan that's based on those, the behavior will change. It's, it's the, it's the most dependent variable. And as a result, we'll change fastest if we can figure out what the cue and the reward is. And when you talk about cues, a lot of times we talk about cues in animal studies and it's like a light or a sound or a shape or something like that. But it can actually be, cues can be very subtle, right? Oh, incredibly subtle. In fact, most, most of the habits that, that we've found are, you know, mental habits. And, and very often those cues are things that, that people hardly even notice. But in general, when it comes to humans, most cues fall into one of five categories. It's usually, and this makes it easier to, to recognize what they are. It's usually a, um, a particular place or a certain time of day or a particular emotion that you feel or the presence of certain people 
or a preceding behavior that's become almost ritualized, right? And if you think about your own, your, your the habits that are in your own life, it, you can probably figure out like what the cues are just by going through that like list and saying like, okay, well, so what time of day does it happen? And how am I feeling when I usually, you know, end up doing this habitual thing? Uh, who else is standing around me? I feel like the, uh, the kind of quintessential uh, way that this occurs is for example, like brushing your teeth, yeah. Most absolutely. people brush their teeth in the same order and in the same way and even in the same pattern every single time. No, absolutely. And it's fascinating. And there's actually a chapter in The Power of Habit about how the teeth brushing habit emerged because it because there was basically one marketer who figured out how to convince the entire country that they should brush their teeth. But you're exactly right. What most people don't realize is that they have a habit around brushing their teeth or tying their shoes. This is really interesting. There was a study that was done that looked at how people tie their shoes inevitably 99% of people who are listening to this podcast right now, they will tie their shoes in the exact same order every single day because it feels natural. feels like a habit unless they go on vacation. Once you're on vacation and your cues change, you're much more likely to reverse the order of the shoes of how you tie your shoes. But you're exactly right. Like brushing your teeth is a great example. So, so what's the cue for brushing your teeth? For many people, this cue um, could be a time of day, right? That they do it every morning and every, every evening. Evening. It, very often what happens though is that it actually becomes linked to other cues as well. So for instance, if I take a shower and I get out of the shower, I don't actually feel clean unless I've brushed my teeth. That's when I remember to brush my teeth is whenever I get out of the shower, even if it's in the middle of the day. And then the question becomes, okay, so what's the reward, right? Because brushing your teeth, as anyone who has children know, knows, brushing your teeth is not fun, right? <laughs> kids, kids fight against it a, a, a huge amount. And what's interesting is that if you look at the history of toothbrushing, it basically didn't become a popular habit until this one guy in particular started adding chemicals to toothpaste that made people's, that were mild irritants to people's gums and their tongue particularly their gums. So you know that tingle you get when you brush your teeth? Yeah, of course. That tingle exists because of chemicals that are added to toothpaste to make the, the tingle happen. You, you don't, if you made, if you made a toothpaste in its natural state, your teeth would not tingle after you used it. But they add mint and other things and, and particularly these like chemicals with long names to make your gums tingle. And that's because your brain comes to expect and crave that tingling as a signal to yourself that you have cleaned your teeth, that you've done something good, that this toothpaste is actually working. In fact, the tingle itself becomes a reward that, sub that nearly subconsciously triggers this craving in people to go brush their teeth. If you take the tingle away, people won't brush their teeth. Interestingly, the same thing happens to be true of um, shampoo, so that, so shampoo manufacturers add chemicals to make shampoo frothy, right? To create all those bubbles. Yeah. Sodium lauryl sulfate. Exactly. Is the usual exactly. chemical. And without that, shampoo works just as effectively. It just doesn't create any bubbles. Those bubbles are a reward. They convince you that your hair is getting cleaner, that the shampoo is doing something. And as a result, you begin to expect and, and anticipate those bubbles. And it, it helps spur the habit to uh, use more shampoo. Now we're talking a little bit about reward and a lot of the research that you cite in the book on developing habits does have rewarding stuff associated with it either immediately like brushing your teeth or in the long run, like say saving money or eating better. But in the short run, a lot of habits that we want to develop suck. 
Because, for example, <laughs> running hurts. <laughs> Celery is not delicious. There, I don't think I've ever met anyone who was like, mmm, I love the taste of celery. <laughs> what has to happen to create a habit if the habit itself is not fun? Well, so the, the first thing that has to happen is that you have to give yourself a reward once you've done that activity, right? So, so there was a, there was like a German, there was a, an experiment that was done by a German, excuse me, a German healthcare company where they actually took a whole bunch of, um, plan members and they basically gave them this long lecture about, about exercise that they should exercise. And then they took about a third of the room off and they gave them an additional 10 minute lecture. And they told that group that what they ought to do is they ought to give themselves a small piece of chocolate as soon as they're done exercising. And this is kind of counterintuitive, right? Cause most of us, we like exercise and we wait like 45 minutes before we eat chocolate. Cause we want to pretend like they're not related to each other. But what the German researchers figured is like, if you eat a small piece of chocolate right away, if you give yourself a, a reward right away, it will reinforce this habit. And in fact, it worked. What they found is that among that group that they gave that additional lecture to, exercise rent rates went up in a, in a, in a non-trivial way. But I would imagine the chocolate consumption also yes, went up. Well, what's interesting though, so, so the, the first answer to your question is if you have a habit that seems like a hard habit that you want to start, choose a reward to give yourself as soon as you do the behavior, right? Just, just engineer a reward into the habit loop. But what's interesting is that when researchers have looked at groups like this, people who start exercising, who have these exter external rewards at first, like a piece of chocolate, over time, they stop eating the chocolate. And researchers wondered why. And what they figured out was that, as anyone who exercises knows or runs knows, when you run, it releases like endorphins and endocannabinoids. You actually feel good from running, right? But it takes a little while for your brain to learn that there's a intrinsic reward associated with running, that you don't need the chocolate. There's actually something that will make you feel good or reward that behavior that just happens automatically. And the whole point of the chocolate is actually basically to kind of trick your brain into thinking there's a reward until it learns what the reward actually is. And over time, what they find is that these people who give themselves chocolate after they exercise, they just eventually stop eating the chocolate. Right? They, they don't even really notice that they've stopped eating the chocolate. They just don't need it anymore because their brain has learned that there's other rewards, intrinsic rewards that are actually more rewarding. That's also why, for instance, people end up on, will oftentimes like keep track of their miles when they're first running, right? They, they'll like have a calendar and they'll write down like they're giving themselves a reward. I, I just ran three and a half miles. I'm going to write it on the calendar. I'm going to feel really good about myself. I'm going to give myself the reward of sort of self pride. And, and that becomes a habit. That reward becomes institutionalized. And so people will do it for years. But what eventually happens is that people like, they still have this affection for writing down their miles. They like tracking it. It feels good, but they're not running because they can write down those miles. They're running because their brain has learned, oh, there's all these intrinsic rewards, including self-pride that comes from exercise. And this is about, we were talking about, you know, building up these miles and you're kind of developing a new habit. And I don't know about you, but my New Year's resolution is actually not about doing something more. I want to do something less. Okay. I want to stop using social media so much, but habits can be very enduring when certain Absolutely. cues, like say the presence of your computer, <laughs> are around. Um, can you talk a little bit about habit reversal training? Sure. Well, and here's the thing. I think if your if your New Year's resolution is just to extinguish a behavior, like um, like not checking social media, 
I don't think that's going to work. I think that that you are going to set that resolution and it's going to fail. Oh, I know. But I think there's I think there's a better way of doing it, which is to diagnose why you're going to social media, why that habit exists, and to try and change the habit rather than trying to extinguish it. And in fact, in psychology, this is known as the golden rule of habit change, which is that it's almost impossible to simply make a habit disappear. And and we know that there's neurological reasons for this. But on the other hand, it's actually much easier to simply change the behavior and make it correspond to the old cue and the old reward. So, So let me ask you. So when you... When you go to social media, like, how does this habit currently exist? When do you find yourself going to social media when you don't really need to? Oh, all day. Okay, but, but <laughs> give me a specific. When's the last? Okay, so when's the last time you were on Facebook? Oh, mm, I don't know. Let's see. We got online twenty minutes ago, so twenty-two minutes ago. Okay. Okay, so you had kind of a down moment, like you had a moment before you and I were, were going to get on the phone together. And were you bored or were you just like needed to do something with your hands? What, why, why do you think you got, why do you think you went to Facebook? <laughs> I think in that case, it was very clear I was trapped in a small recording studio waiting. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So maybe you're bored. Maybe you're bored. Maybe for you, the, the cue for your Facebook habit is boredom. Now, now it could be other stuff too. And you, you need to experiment a little bit just to see if it is boredom. Cause it could be sort of a, a need for novelty. It could be that, um, that you're actually interested, like Facebook, like t- tells you something interesting that you need for your job. But anyways, let's just assume for a second that the cue is boredom. Now, what is the reward when you go on Facebook? What kind of itch does it scratch for you? Like, like when you have a good session on Facebook, why do you think it's good? Usually because I read something interesting or funny that, you know, is fun. So funny. So it's providing a little bit of novelty. Um, and not only that, but that novelty is actually a positive novelty, right? You're not like, you're not going and reading about like the latest Trump outrage. Instead, you're going and you're reading like some funny thing on McSweeney's or something like that. Okay. So, so this is a working hypothesis. You'd have to do a little bit more re- like experiments to see if this, but this is a great place to start is that your cue is boredom. Your, the reward you're seeking is positive novelty, preferably funny novelty. So if you want to change this habit, you got two options. You could, first of all, just say you're going to extinguish it. You're going to pretend like Facebook doesn't exist anymore. And that's pretty much guaranteed not to work, right? Or secondarily, you could say, okay, what can I do instead? I know my cue. I know my reward. What new behavior could you put in there that you think is a healthier behavior, behavior you like more, and that also you could do when you're bored. So it has to be something kind of easy and fast. And that provides like a little burst of like humorous novelty. You got any ideas? Uh, Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) So that could be something, but maybe Instagram is just as bad to you as Facebook. I think I'm going to have to work on this one. (laughs) But like, what if you, what if you carried around like a funny novel? Right? Like, um, like, I don't know what your novel tastes are like, but like, I, I was rereading, um, The Crying of Lot 49 recently, which like, is like, it's certainly, there's a lot of novel, like, there's a lot of new stuff in there, the ideas, and it's kind of funny, right? Or like, you know, there's any number, or, or the, the, the Shouts and Murmurs page on, on the New Yorker, right? Or even on NewYorker.com, they put up a new Shouts and Murmurs every day. And the nice thing is, it's always short. 
So it doesn't take much time. It's not like you fall in that Facebook hole where you just go to thing after thing after thing. The point being that like once you diagnose what these cues and these rewards are that are driving your behavior, you can choose a new behavior. You can choose a new behavior. You can choose a new routine. And like going and saying, instead of going to Facebook, I'm going to go to Shouts and Murmurs, the humor column on the New Yorker website. And I know it's only going to take three minutes at most to read that. That actually might be a much better behavior for you than saying, I'm going to go to Facebook. Because the thing about Facebook is Facebook is designed to make you want to stay on Facebook, right? The the newsfeed never ends. But the point being that you, if you want to change that habit, instead of simply saying, I'm not going to do something, you got to figure out what you're going to do instead. And, and it I should be something. I wanted to like, ask another old, question old, about or, that. Sure. So we were talking about, you know, Facebook being endless. And this is in part because Facebook encourages this habit. It's kind of the downside of habits. And it shows how people and companies take advantage of our habits and our desires. You actually mentioned extensively in your book that a lot of companies are focusing on our habits. You know, Facebook is drawing us in. Media companies are taking advantage of our habits, tracking our habits to boost revenue and to get more clicks. Do you think that there's ever going to be such a thing as too much habit? No. Well, I mean, that's like saying, like, is there such a thing as, like, too much oxygen? Like, we need habits, right? Our our habits – we don't get to choose whether habits are part of our lives or not. 40 to 45% of what we do every single day is a habit. And and thank God, because otherwise we wouldn't be humans. We would be, we would never would have evolved to where we are. The, the question isn't, are there too many habits? The question is, can you control those habits, right? Do you understand how to put yourself in charge so that you, rather than all of the the corporations or the influences around you are deciding what your habits are. And and the truth of the matter is that like, you know, Facebook is really good at this. Facebook has a bunch of smart young people who exist to figure out how to get you to stay on Facebook longer. They have, they have machine learning AI that exists to try and model diagnose and then manipulate our habits. And, and our grandchildren, they'll be much better at this. The same way that we're better at telephones than our grandparents were. They, any new technology, we build up sort of defenses against. But for us, for us, it's all new. And so the only thing in place, the only answer is to understand that habits are also very delicate. Once you understand how they work, you can take control again. For most of us, it's not that Facebook's so powerful. It's that we don't even understand why Facebook is affecting us the way that we are. And once we learn how to diagnose those cues and rewards, we have control over what we do. Well, Charles, thank you so much for helping us take control of our habits. Thanks for having me on. We've linked to more information about Charles Duhigg's books at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we'll be speaking with someone who's on the front lines helping people keep their New Year's resolutions. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
Welcome back. Let's be honest. Our new habit-forming skills aside, New Year's resolutions get kind of a bad rap because most people don't keep them. Life gets in the way, saving is hard, people are busy, but there are, it turns out, certain factors that predict your potential success at keeping your new gym habit. To tell us about it, I'm here with Ayelet Fischbach, a behavioral sciences professor at the Booth School of Business in the University of Chicago. Ayelet, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, I wanted to start by asking, most people have probably thought at some point in their lives, oh, why can't I stick to a habit? Why do people do what they do? Why do people act this way? We all, we all ask each other these behavioral questions. Most of us don't end up studying them professionally. What got you interested in studying self-control? Oh, I, I don't uh, actually know why most people don't do this. I can think of a more fun, rewarding uh, career, but luckily... Uh, Many other people didn't think about it, so there is demand for uh, my skills. Um, I literally just uh, never did anything else. Like I uh, went uh, to college, studied psychology, and thought, oh, that's fun. I, I want to do more. And the next thing was to get a master's degree, and the, and the next thing was to get a PhD. And then the only way to keep doing that uh, uh, was to find an academic job. And so I... I must say that I can't say that I ever seriously consider doing something else. So in order to uh, pursue this, I assume you must have had a lot of self-control yourself. Self-control <laughs> seems very, I mean, even the word itself seems very virtuous, not very fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems like something that shouldn't actually be nice but it turns out that reward plays a big role in self-control. Why is that? So, so that you're absolutely right. Self-control is basically overcoming what um, what would be our immediate inclination, uh, what would be the, uh, the the other thing that we would like to do, and uh, not do that, and instead uh, uh, pursuing something that uh, would be good for us in the long run. Okay, so, so overcoming the immediate temptations, whether this is the, you know, the, the, the cake, the procrastination, uh, they're watching TV instead of doing something. So yes, self-control is hard, but what we, we discovered over many years of studying uh, self-control is that um, people are not very good at it, and so one way to get them to be better is by making sure that you don't completely give up on what is rewarding at the moment. Basically, it's really hard to do something that it's not at all rewarding at the moment. We can do it, right? Like we, we can all uh, you know, undergo uh, some uh, unpleasant medical checkup, but for very... Uh, limited amount of time and it's very hard to do and likely we will postpone and so probably the way to get us to reach our long-term goals is um is in a way by doing something that i almost I, i'm tempted to call bypassing self-control by choosing activities that pursue these uh, important goals but also provide something that is immediately fun that is immediately rewarding, knowing that we are not that good at putting away 
immediate gratification in order to to stick to what's good in the long run. Now, you talk a lot about both immediate and long-term goals. And many of us kind of set long-term goals. And the idea is that, you know, at the end of six months or something, you'll have your long-term goal, you'll complete a marathon or do your, I don't know, have your taxes done or uh, eat better. You know, you'll, you'll achieve these long-term rewarding goals. But there's actually, you and your colleagues distinguish between immediate and delayed rewards. What is the difference between an immediate reward and a delayed reward other than the time scale involved? Uh, well, basically, this is it. Okay, it is about uh, a, a time. Uh, immediate rewards will be delivered either while pursuing something or immediately after. Okay, so, so immediate reward for exercising uh, would be the the fun music or uh, TV that I'm going to watch while I'm doing that, or maybe the the pleasant feeling from the adrenaline in my bloodstream. Uh, the delay rewards is um, being healthier uh, in the future, uh, is um, you know, fitting into the clothes that I'm hoping to wear, wear uh, in several months. That it, It's basically something that doesn't happen right now. And you also note that most of the things we pursue, whether it's like our daily job or, you know, yeah. long-term fitness, have both that immediate and that delayed reward component. Yes, absolutely. So um, let me say that most of the things that we do for delayed rewards also offer some immediate rewards. Okay, it's not necessarily the other way around. Okay, in the sense that when uh, uh, when we eat unhealthy food, uh, when we uh, procrastinate, uh, when we engage in in unhealthy uh, uh, habits, uh, it's very likely that they don't offer any long-term rewards. If anything, they undermine long-term rewards. But if we are doing what we we should be doing, which is you know, eating good stuff, uh, I think that we should be eating, uh, exercising, uh, even going to work, uh, we engage in activities that also offer some immediate rewards. So I, you know, I, I go to work because there are long-term rewards, because this is the way to get a paycheck by the end of the month or a promotion by the end of the year. Uh, but it's really hard to get out of bed if your job is is completely unrewarding in, in the short term, if there is nothing um, immediately rewarding when you do that. And so for most of us, work is also a place where we, we meet our friends, we are doing things that are somewhat interesting, uh, we are... We are moving around, we are uh, challenged, and, and all these are uh, immediate rewards. Um, you know, the, the healthy food that we are eating, to the extent that we are eating it, is probably also somewhat tasty. Okay, And that would be an immediate uh, reward. So it, it is really about timing, and for most of what we do that is good for us in the long run, uh, we would claim, well, it also offers some immediate rewards, otherwise people would not do that. And when you went to study long-term delayed rewards, you ended up looking actually in one of your experiments at New Year's resolutions. Why New Year's resolutions? Is there something special about them? 
what's nice about New Year resolutions uh, no, is that the people set them. Okay, so people uh, decide that uh, they are going to be different. They are going to change. They are going to start doing something in a different way uh, than what they've been doing so far. And also what is really nice for us as researchers is that they tend to do it around the same time of the year. So I bet people take on new goals on themselves every day, but it's hard for me to know who exactly set this goal uh, for themselves, whereas around the new year, uh, we can basically contact a large group of people, ask them, did you set new year resolution? And many of them will say yes, and now we have a population that we can study. So that was <laughs> the main reason to study uh, new year resolutions, uh, what we um uh, did is asking in January people whether they set resolutions and to the extent that they did, they were part of our experiment and we uh, uh, got back to them in March and asked them how well they are doing. But basically, we, we reminded them, you know, remember that this resolution that you set, well, uh, have you been able to stick to it? Uh, how much are you still doing it uh, uh, right now? And we had two predictors for uh, um, uh, for that. That is two variables that we measured that we thought might be associated, might predict how much people persist with their uh, New Year resolutions. Uh, one was uh, how much they they immediately enjoy these activities. So uh, uh, we asked questions such as. Uh, uh, is is this resolution something that provides you with a positive experience? Is this is enjoyable? Okay, is this is something that you find engaging? So that was one predictor, and then we also had another predictor, which is how much you get delayed rewards. Is this is something that is useful? Okay, we also ask if this is something that you are doing because you want to change your life. Uh, if this, is this is something that is important for you? And now, once we get to March, we predict engagement with uh, these two variables, basically looking at the relationship between each one uh, and how much people persist. And, and what we found is that it's mainly the extent to which these resolutions were immediately rewarding that predicted whether people were able to stick to them. Is there any reason that you checked in on them in March as opposed to, say, in December? In it, like my cynical side says, maybe it's because in December so many of them would have failed that <laughs> it wouldn't have been uh, point. There wouldn't have been a point. Or uh, I'm trying now to think whether uh, uh, there was. Uh, I think that we just felt that uh, three months is like a good time to uh, to get sufficient volumes. <laughs> Okay, so, so maybe we had a similar intuition to yours that maybe by December there's going to be many that already forgot about the resolution. By January, everybody is still doing it. Around March, we really have this natural variance where we can see who's doing it, who's not. Remember, we are not trying to help them persist. Okay, so we are not doing any intervention that's supposed to help people persist in the resolution. We are just looking at what predicts whether people stick to their resolutions just a couple of months later. And those people that you picked, picked their own resolutions. So you actually, you know, asked what their resolutions were and put them into buckets. Um, do you think it would have been different had they been, say, 
you know, given like three or four options for a resolution they wanted to make, or, you know, been assigned a resolution or, you know, been given, like, been asked to set definable goals? Could any of that have made a difference? Um, in the sense that they, they, that they would not like us to set goals for them, probably, like, in, in studying self-control, well, the, you know, the idea in self-control is that the self is trying to control, uh, which means that I can't assign someone to pursue a goal that they don't already have. I can remind them of a goal that I think they might have. And to the extent that they have it, then uh, I would expect similar effects. Um, if um, if they don't have the goal, then it's not going to uh, do anything if, you know, if I assign that. Uh, we actually look to see whether different goals are different here, whether they, we get different effects for different goals. We, we couldn't find anything. Now, I must say that uh, uh, half of the resolutions were uh, health-related, so there was not uh, much variance there. Um, people usually set resolutions to exercise, to uh, eat uh, uh, healthier. Uh, about a third are work-related, so also not really shocking. Uh, people want to uh, to get uh, ahead at work, to, um, you know, to save more money, get out of debt, and uh, and, and and so on. And then just a uh, few uh, few goals that were not in one of these two categories. So. Well, what I was wondering was, you know, you have people who say, "Oh, I just want to eat healthier." And then you have people who say, from now on, I am going to eat two green vegetables a day. Yeah. You know, it, does that, does that make a difference? Kind of the, the definite goals versus the, you know, kind of, yes. oh, I'm just going to eat better. <laughs> yes. More specific goals uh, help, but people rarely set them as, as new year resolution. Why do so, you think that is? Um, it's an interesting question. I, I would uh, I would say that uh, the people are just very vague in their plan to uh, to adhere to these resolutions. They they basically say, well, next year I'm I'm going to be a better person. Okay, it's about time I will get into shape. Uh, they are not sufficiently committed, probably, to uh, actually make a specific plan of well, next year I'm going to go to the gym. Three times a week. Or, you Did know, you eat. ask them how, like, how much that goal meant to them? Do you think that would make a difference, you know, in terms of whether they pursued it? You know, if you just like, oh, yeah, I just I just want to be fitter. Yeah. But you don't yeah, like, really sure. want to be fitter. Or do you really, really, really want to be fitter? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm actually, the, no, this is basically what we call commitment. Mm-hmm. And commitment is a function of two things. Okay, one is how much you value it, and the other thing is how much you think you have a chance. And to the extent that someone really cares about being fit, then they are going to do it more than someone who says, "Ah, that will be nice, but I'm not going to uh, work too hard." Uh, and to the extent that someone thinks that they can actually do that, uh, then they are, it's more likely that they will do it. And uh, if there's someone that says, "Well, that would be great to be," in better shape but I don't know that I can do it 
So believing that this is possible and valuable, yes, they, this absolutely. But this is not this particular research. We, we actually know that for many years. Right. So in, in this study, I was interested because the New Year's resolution was actually the first experiment in a series of experiments. And in the second one, you did what I call the study study. <laughs> in which yeah. you asked people why they studied in a library. <laughs> what was yeah. the immediate reward there? Yeah, yes. So, uh, you know, let me, before I get to this specific question, just answer what I think is the general question, which is uh, uh, why, why do we ask uh, about the fun of doing things that are not fun to begin with? Uh, well... <laughs> For a reason, okay. I'm sure that uh, how much someone enjoys, um, you know, a, a movie or a TV series predicts how much they watch it, and how much someone enjoys the cake predicts how much one eats it. Okay, but what is interesting for us is whether for things that people don't choose for the fun, okay, they choose them for something else. Whether it is still the case that the extent to which this is good. This feels good at the moment, predicts engagement. Okay, so we take New Year resolution. No one in our sample sets a New Year resolution because it's fun to do. If it was fun to do, I didn't, didn't have to set it as a resolution. Nevertheless, the extent to which I enjoyed predicts engagement. Then we went to the library saying, well, let's push it. Okay, students are not going to the library because uh, they cannot think of anything more enjoyable to do. I mean, I, I'm actually at the University of Chicago, so I believe that we do have some students that can't think of anything more fun than going to the library, but... I was going to say, here, I love libraries. Uh, yeah, yeah, you would fit in. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, the average college students can uh, think of more fun things to do than uh, studying for their class. Uh, and nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, despite the fact, and, and we verify that, that our students in uh, in this sample saying, I'm here mainly because I have to, because it's important, not because it's something that I uh, enjoy doing. So they, they say it's more important than enjoyable, but the extent to which my materials are enjoyable will predict how long I'm going to work on this much more than the extent to which the materials are important. Okay, basically students are working on interesting materials much more than on important materials. This definitely explains my college calculus grades. The <laughs> yeah, need to find some fun in that calculus. You know, you're welcome to try. <laughs> um, so... Students were studying what they enjoyed the longest. They were getting kind of the short-term reward. Yeah. And then in the third experiment, you actually went to the gym, which I love, and you talked with students on exercise equipment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't a long conversation. <laughs> they were uh, in, in the in the cardio room, so uh, um, they were you know, using the the treadmill uh, and the elliptical and and so on. Um, and again, uh, we asked them, why are you there? Is it because it's important for you or because this is what you enjoy doing? And most people have both, but they say mainly because it's important. Yeah, I, go, I go to the gym because it's important for me. 
Um, but then we asked them how important it is uh, that you have, have a useful exercise, a good exercise, uh, something that will keep you in shape. And we also ask how important it is that you enjoy, that you have fun in uh, today's exercise. And then we measure how many minutes they are on whatever it is that they are doing, okay? how many minutes they are running or biking or whatever. Uh, and basically, the statistical analysis is such that we regress the time that they were on the machine on how much they enjoy it, uh, actually how important it is for them to enjoy it, how important it is for them uh, to do something uh, useful, uh, the extent to which they are there to do something fun predicts how long they exercise, uh, the extent to which they are there because they think this is useful, much less so. Yeah, I was actually wondering about this because a lot of the cardio equipment, I, I go to the gym a lot, and I was wondering how much your results might differ if you assigned people to workout machines. So for example, they're all there to work out. They all have the same long-term goal. But I personally would never, ever get on an exercise bike because I loathe them with the fire of a thousand suns. <laughs> but I yeah. would get on the elliptical for a good hour or so. Do you think you'd get kind of stronger outcomes if you randomly assigned people machines? So I will tell you about another study that we ran that is not in this paper, but uh, was uh, just uh, around that time, uh, also with uh, Caitlin Woolley. Uh, we basically let people choose, but we either tell them, no, choose whatever you think would be the most effective exercise. So choose, choose the thing that you think will be good for you, will make you stronger. Uh, or that we tell them, well, choose the thing that you will enjoy the most. Okay, choose the exercise that will be fun for you to do. Um, and then we find that people persist more uh, when they made a choice based on immediate rewards, based on what is immediately gratifying. So when so you I, don't I force me to get on the exercise bike, I work out longer. Exactly. Uh, exactly. What, to the extent that you, you choose and you choose because you enjoy it. Okay, you choose what you enjoy, then yes. And the new what intuition. I found was especially interesting about this whole series of experiments is that is something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, that it kind of contradicts some of the ideas around self-control, because self-control has this idea associated with it, that long-term rewards allow you to resist temptation. And this is kind of giving you this little better temptation, or maybe not better, but it's, it's a little temptation to help you resist a bigger temptation. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, it, it's true. I mean, self-control is overcoming yourself, right? It, it's the self-controlling itself. Uh, so it would not be my advice to just do whatever feels good at the moment, okay? Because what might feel good at the moment is not exercising at all, okay? Or not studying at all or staying in bed in, instead of going to work. And uh, uh, that's not the recipe to achieve your long-term goals, but once you set your goals, okay, and you set them thinking about what might be good for you in the long run, then you will have to find along the way these immediate pleasures. Okay, so in a way, what I think is counterintuitive here is that we say go for something that would be immediately rewarding, but 
in the service of your long-term goal. Okay, so go to the library. Okay, choose something to study, but then once you are there, well, find find your passion there, find the immediate gratification. Do it with other people, okay, because it might be fun to do things, whether it's walking, exercising, learning with other people. So in, in actually to kind of tie into that concept of finding other people, one of the things that I've noticed recently is a lot of social media sites have sprung up that are kind of around long-term goals. They're actually dedicated workout sites um, like MyFitnessPal and Fitocracy and places like that where you can actually log what you do and what you eat and share it with your friends. <laughs> so people yeah. kind of virtuously document their long runs on Facebook with romantic photography of the view at eight miles or something. What role do you think social media could play in kind of sticking to these long-term goals? Uh, several roles. Uh, one is uh, basically uh, support. Okay, Doing things with other people to the extent that I have a a gym buddy, that's great. Uh, if I don't have someone that will actually stop by my door and say, let's go there, uh, well, I might have this uh, friend online and we might compare notes by the end of the day or the week. And it's kind of like, well, what have you done this week? What have you uh, achieved and, uh, and can provide social uh, support? Uh, another thing is social comparison. Okay, I don't want to be behind if I see that my friends are getting ahead, uh, they are doing the things that they should be doing, that might encourage me to be part of the, uh, the group. Um, we can think of other ways in which uh, uh, social media is, is basically a reminder. Okay, so you now we spend many hours there. It's one of the biggest temptations that people would like to avoid, actually. <laughs> but while you are there, well, here's... No, some some place that will remind you um, of your uh, goals, and then the the act of documentation uh, basically provides feedback. So, no, it's it's hard to remember what I did, what I needed to do, uh, if I have uh, a phone or an app or uh, some device that uh, tells me, well, keep going. You still have that many steps to walk today. Uh, that's that's useful feedback. And I wanted to ask a little bit about self-control more generally. There's this pervasive idea that I think many of us have kind of come to that you have a limited amount of willpower in a day or a limited amount of self-control, but it's like a muscle. And if you work it out, you can get more of it. Is that true? Well, it's a metaphor. Okay? So it's not uh, an actual muscle. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's a metaphor that, uh, like all metaphors, it's accurate to, to some degree. It's, uh, it's accurate in the sense that, um, uh, that people can only do that much in a day. And we know that uh, if there is a lot of stress in life, uh, it's hard to and other things. If you had a really bad day at work, it's hard to uh, say, well, and then I will go home and it will be super nice to my family members and maybe also exercise at night. Well, no, like I'm, I'm done for the day. I'm, I'm exhausted. And in, in that sense, uh, self-control is a, is a limited energy. Uh, the other 
aspect of the metaphor is that uh, self-control can uh, can improve um, over uh, training, and there is some evidence for that. Uh, less uh, less than the effect by which we get depleted. Okay, there is a lot of evidence for getting depleted. There is like a little bit of evidence for building up self-control uh, through some um, deliberate uh, training. And I wanted to ask about these little immediate rewards that people can give themselves to get these long-term goals. Um, so you mentioned, well, you know, sometimes people get a social reward from working out socially, or you study something that you like, but is it possible that some immediate rewards can kind of hold back the achievement of your long-term goals? I'm thinking of, in, in particular, a lot of people will go to the gym and they'll do like a workout. They might do a really hard workout. And then they go out for a beer and eat fries and pizza. I am not yeah, guilty not of this at all. <laughs> totally don't do this ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, can that hold you back? What kind of rewards should you try and keep in mind when you're setting these long-term goals? Well, certainly not the kind of rewards that uh, will undo your goal achievement. So, now, if your goal is to save and by the end of the month you reward yourself by spending everything that you saved, well, that's not getting you anywhere. Uh, so, uh, we call it balancing or licensing when you know, people uh, uh, do good and use this as an excuse to uh, then do supposedly bad, okay, then undo what they uh, achieved. You know, balancing can be adaptive. We all need a break. We all need small prizes, but they uh, they should not uh, undermine the goal. It, it's not a good idea to uh, consume double the calories that you lost over a workout uh, immediately after. I don't know. My my <laughs> my tongue and stomach would say it's a very good idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Now, you mentioned you'd actually done kind of a follow-up study to uh, one of the experiments, the exercise um, study in the gym. What are the other things that you're currently doing with this kind of self-control long-term goal research? Um, oh, that's a big question. We're doing a lot. Uh, we are uh, really trying to uh, push the idea that uh, immediacy of rewards are uh, can can get you a lot. It can can get you to stick to things that um, that that you wouldn't be able to stick to otherwise. Uh, we are currently uh, just working on on some research showing that uh, immediacy makes the experience more intrinsic. Uh, that um, that to the extent that the goal or the reward are strongly associated, they're almost fused with. With doing something, uh, then it feels good to do it. People are intrinsically motivated. They can uh, uh, do it more. Uh, we conducted some studies in which we had people make the same choice, either thinking about the pleasantness or the importance of making this choice, uh, and basically found that to the extent that the choice is... is uh, Something that you are uh, you're doing, thinking about immediate rewards, then you uh, will stick to whatever you chose more. Let me actually give you an example. This is too abstract. Uh, we uh, we had one study in which we had people choose between carrots, 
and they had one bag that was organic carrots and another bag that was non-organic carrots and the carrots are healthy and everybody wants to eat more healthy food and we tell some people choose whichever carrots you think are tastier and we tell other people choose whichever carrots you think are better for you healthier and we also tell a third group choose whichever carrots you think are the most orange okay so <laughs> the most yeah. orange the most orange right is a funny even like people are trying to look at the color and like whatever yeah. now everybody ends up choosing the organic carrots right because they are healthier they are tastier and presumably they're also more orange but You know, who knows? Uh, but those that chose uh, uh, the organic carrots because they were going for something that tastes good ate more carrots. So basically uh, choosing with, uh, with the idea that I need to make a healthy choice that will taste good, okay, that will be pleasant, makes people stick with this longer. Uh, so some direction in which we take this. Interesting. What do you think that your overall findings might mean for someone trying to set a long-term goal. So say you've got someone, you've sat them down, they're like, I want to make a New Year's resolution. What do I need to do to make it stick? So I, I think that the number one mistake that people do when they set long-term goals is basically tell themselves, well, I'm going to be a different person. I'm just going to do that. And no matter how painful it's going to be and how much I will hate it my future self is just going to do that well your future self is going to be very very similar to your present self your future self will actually be your present self once you're in the future and that person is unlikely to do something that is painful and unpleasant and feels horrible so so don't plan that for that future person she's not going to do that When you set long-term goals, you, you need to set something that your present self can, can see herself doing it. Okay. It's fun to some extent. Okay. It's possible. It, it's not torture. And to the extent that you set goals for the future self that your present self can engage in, well, then you, you have a better chance. Well, Ayelet, thank you so much for chatting with us about this. Oh, sure. My pleasure. We've linked to more information about Ayelet Fishbach's work at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can follow us, subscribe to the show, and leave a review. This time, I want to know about your New Year's resolutions. Did you make any? Why or why not? What are your plans? How are you going to stick to them? Ping us at at sci for the people with four is the number four. Or you can contact me at at SciCurious on Twitter to tell me all about it. And if your resolution involves being nice to the podcast creators you listen to, check out our Patreon or just spread the word. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Schell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, 
or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 